Happy Tuesday and welcome back to Locked On Red Sox podcast. Thank you so much for making Locked On Red Sox your first listen every single day. I am your host, Massachusetts Pirates team insider, Jake Ignazewski, or Iggy for short. And unfortunately, Lauren wasn't able to join me today, but I had the opportunity to interview former Red Sox player Jonathan Van Every and ask him about his experience on the Red Sox from 2008 to 2010. So let's listen to part one of my conversation with Jonathan. You are Locked On Red Sox, your daily Boston Red Sox podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I am here with former Red Sox player, Jonathan Van Every. So how are we doing today, Jonathan? Doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing good. Uh, it's it's interesting because I'm, I'm up here in New Hampshire. We, we just got some snow. Then uh, yesterday it decided to be 50 to 60 degrees. <laughs> Pretty crazy looking at the thermometer, seeing that type of stuff in December. But uh, as you know, playing baseball in New England for a little bit, you never know what kind of weather you're going to get. Absolutely. You never know. Some of the coldest days of my life have been up in the Northeast in May. <laughs> Who would have thought? I've seen snow in May up in the Northeast, which is, I can't even fathom that. Usually where I'm from, it's 90 plus already. Yeah, I can only imagine. Are, are you, are you, where, where, are you uh, where are you calling in from today? I am in Nashville, Tennessee now. I'm oh, a transplant like the rest of Nashville. So I've been it. here about four years now. We love it. That's that's awesome. I, I've always wanted to go to Nashville. My mom and her boyfriend had the opportunity to go, and and obviously everything that you hear about Nashville is that the music is incredible, and every bar that you go to, you're gonna you're gonna see some person that you've never heard of, but they sound like somebody that should be uh, like a recording artist or something like that. Yeah, that, or you might hear somebody you have heard of, and you would never right. realize you could possibly see them on a small venue. So you just you never know what you're gonna get. One thousand percent makes sense. Well, I want I want to start off with talking about you growing up in in Mississippi and, and sort of playing baseball there. And how how was that sort of experience? Is it is it a competitive um, state in Mississippi in terms of baseball? And, and are people pretty serious about it? I, I would say so. I mean, um, you know, baseball, football, basketball. I mean, the big three. They were all super super competitive in in mississippi as as well as the entire deep south when i say deep south i've basically mississippi all the way over to uh south carolina per se and florida's kind of on its own little uh island down there but they're super competitive as well but yeah i mean 95 percent of kids growing up you know in, in the deep south they're playing sports whether it's baseball football basketball and i just gravitated towards baseball at an early age just had a natural talent for it and you know, follow that wave, follow that wave all the way, you know, through youth baseball, high school and college mm -hmm. and actually pro, pro ball. So um, like any uh, any kid, it's you have your ups and downs. You have your good right. years, your bad years. You start figuring out what you're good at, what you're not good at. And you always start to gravitate more towards the, the things that you have a natural ability for. And um, fortunately for me, it was it was a game of baseball. And, um, you know, I had a lot of, you know, like I said before, bumps in the road. I mean. 
Uh, I think my high school baseball coach kicked me off the team because I didn't raise enough money for his hit-a-thon one year. So um, always kind of had uh, you know, some misfortunes and misdirection, but you know, you learn from it, you grow from it, and you always figure out a way to, to navigate on on the path you want to go. So, um, yeah, it was a cool experience. And, and during your experience, uh, you know, going through Little League, you know, uh, playing high school ball as well. Um, were you always kind of one of the better players on the team, or did you were you kind of a late bloomer in, in that sense? Uh, probably a little bit of both. I mean, I was always naturally gifted, made all star team. You know, when you had youth sports, you had rec ball, and then all stars. Now, uh, I couldn't even tell you what they're doing now. It, it, all this travel ball stuff has my head spinning. I don't even understand it. But, right. um, but yeah, I just always had a natural talent for it, and you know, there was no weight training program or any kind of off season workout stuff like that. Cause you know, I'm, I'm old as dirt now, but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you, you try and figure out a way to, to always get that competitive edge, you know, be one up on the, on the competition, the guy across the field from you. So, right. um, you know, I was always hitting in the cage, you know, back then we didn't have all these fancy cases they had. Now we would go to like golf world. Mm-hmm. So the putt putt plates would have a batting cage in there. You could throw the coin in there, and they throw the ball out of the arm. So that oh, that's, that's how funny. we took our batting practice half the time. So nowadays they got all these fancy you know, video machines, and they got a coach mm-hmm. that'll throw a thousand pitches a night, BP right. to all these kids in these fancy cages. But um, but yeah, I mean it's just uh, it wasn't a all season training workout per se. It was more of um, just keeping doing the things that you enjoy doing, which for us was going to play putt putt, riding go karts, and mm-hmm. taking swings in the batting cage. That's funny that you say that because there's actually a place uh, a little bit close to my to my house, and and it has it has a mini golf, it has a go kart range, and it also has a batting cage as well. And funny enough, um, in the batting cage, it has the whole green monster over there, so you can try to hit a hit a ball over a green monster. So you have a fancy batting cage. I didn't have yeah. that. <laughs> I just had a chain link fence I was sitting at. So that's pretty cool. That's funny. I'd have to see that. I'd like to see that sometime. Yeah, and they, and they have like the obvious like 60 mile per hour, 80 mile per hour, and then like 90 mile per hour. I, I, I remember once or twice I, I tried to hit off of that. And, you know, right, right when you see the ball, you just swing and kind of close your eyes oh, yeah. and hope, hope and pray that you hit the baseball. Oh, heck yeah. It's a, it's a different animal getting in there with fast pitching off a machine. For sure. 100%. And so growing up, did, did you have uh, like a favorite team? I was probably, if I had a favorite team, it would be the Cubs. Um, not because of geography, but because I lived out in the sticks in Mississippi. And one of the only stations that we got was WGN, which was mm-hmm. the home of the Cubs at the time. So we always loved the Cubs. If I had a favorite player, it would definitely be Will Clark. Um, he was a, uh, Louisiana guy, uh, went to Mississippi State, who we followed growing up, and then uh, obviously went to the Giants and had great first couple of years. And I still remember as a kid, he put out my Cubs in 89 when he, I don't think he got out the entire NLCS. He may have hit like 900 and just destroyed everything. But he was always a great one to see. And one of the highlights when I was little, um, Lenny Dykstra, I don't know if you remember that name, but he's from Jackson, Mississippi originally and set up shop there when uh, my brother actually played baseball on his son's team uh, Mm -hmm. a couple of years. But every year Lenny would have a baseball camp and he'd have a couple of big league guys come back and he'd have Barry Lyons, Will Clark uh, himself, of course, 
uh, Bill Robinson. Uh, there was a, always a couple of good big league guys to come back, and it was always cool. just mesmerizing seeing those guys um, in real life. Oh, I bet it, it must have made you want to get up there uh, in the majors even more. And um, I, I'll, I'll never forget when I would go to like minor league games and I would see guys who I would eventually see in the major leagues. You just kind of get that superstardom sort of feeling. Yeah, yeah, you get starstruck. I mean, I was even when I finally got to the big leagues, I'm I was a bit starstruck. I mean, shoot, I'm walking onto a team that just won the World Series. It has Manny Ramirez, David Ortiz, probably four or five Hall of Famers. And I'm I'm just as starstruck as anybody else in the stands. Oh, yeah. I, I can only imagine playing with those guys when you first walk into the clubhouse. You're just like, oh, my God, do I even belong? Yeah, exactly. Well, the first thing I did when I got spring training, I was like, hey, man, let me get your autograph on this ball. So I do have a ball <laughs> somewhere around here signed by basically the 07 World Series team. Oh, wow. Yeah, that must have been incredible being being a part of you know that that whole roster. But we can talk about that a little bit later. But uh, it's especially like growing up in that environment. Um, how was it being a Cubs fan, and how, how nice was it finally being able to see them win the World Series a, a few years ago against the Indians? Yeah, it's it's funny you say that. I you know I think I finished playing in two thousand eleven, uh, which God, it's a long time now, but. Um, I don't know if I actually watched a baseball game until that World Series. And that's the honest truth. And I watched every single game of it, and it was very exciting. So, I mean, you had an organization that I got drafted by that I spent a lot of time in against an organization that I always basically idolized growing up as a kid. So, right. uh, yeah, that was uh, it was pretty incredible. Oh, I can only imagine. I, I probably the listeners – listening to this probably won't like this too too much but honestly that game seven um is the greatest baseball game in my opinion i've I've ever seen just like the back and forth even though i wasn't rooting for either team um because i i think for the indians it it would be the first time in a good amount of years for them but obviously i knew with the cubs 108 uh, year deficit and uh I, i remember that rajay davis home run and um, you know, the, the whole stadium was going crazy. And then um, yep. just, it, it felt like forever just to get that final out for the Cubs. I, I remember yeah. um, Edwards came in, he let up, a, he, he let up a few guys on and then they, um, they brought in Mike Montgomery and it was just in, just in a great, pretty crazy game. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a nutty game for sure. And it's, you know, kind of close to me because, you know, I had, you know, Frank Kona was my manager in, in Boston and I played against Rajay Davis, probably set up seven out of my 11 years of professional baseball. And mm-hmm. a lot of those guys are on the field. You know, I, you know, I had somewhat of a connection to them in some way, shape or form, whether they were a coach or a player. So um, it was, it was, uh, it was definitely an electric, electrifying atmosphere. Oh yeah, I can only imagine. I hope you guys have been enjoying my conversation thus far with former Red Sox player Jonathan Van Every. But I want to take a second to talk to you real quick about Bet Online. Bet Online has you covered all season, more props, odds, and lines than ever before as football season continues the march to the playoffs. Bet Online remains your number one spot for all sports action this season. Head to our new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% off welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code locked on to receive your bonus from basketball, football, NHL, boxing, and UFC right to your favorite Vegas casino games. Don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. 
Bet online is the easiest way to bet all your favorite sports. Bet online, where the game starts. And I also want to take a second to talk to you about DirecTV Stream. DirecTV Stream is the simplest way to get your entertainment you love without the hassle. DirecTV Stream brings you live TV on-demand favorites together like never before, which means you can watch your favorite shows, movies, and sports all in one place. And the best part, there's no annual contracts. So stop waiting and get your TV together with DirecTV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Now let's get back into my conversation with Jonathan Van Every. And uh, I, I want to get back real quick to you, like growing up, as, as I bet you felt like throughout your time, like, you know, dreaming about being an MLB player and, and just working your butt off every day to get to that point. Um, was there any doubters during that journey of people who, when you said, oh, I want to be a major league baseball player that, you know, that's a one in a million chance. Like, let's, let's see that actually happen. I would say there was more doubters than believers, uh, to be honest. And that's, you know, my mom and dad, I mean, they were always a believer. They always wanted me to do anything that I wanted to, whether that was play baseball or play hockey or, you know, go mow the grass. You know, they were always right. a big supporter, never really pushed me in one direction or the other, just wanted me to be happy. But I mean, from, uh, from little league coaches to, you know, as I mentioned before, my high school coach, I didn't raise enough money on his hit and he basically kicked me off the team. So even at Ole Miss, you know, I signed as a two-way player, um, never even picked up a bat the entire time I was at Ole Miss. All I did was pitch. So uh, long story short, my scholarship got cut without me knowing it, and I had to go find somewhere else to play, which was uh, at Itawamba, as you mentioned before we started the show. And um, I would say Chuck Box, who's currently at Texas A&M, he was a big believer in me. My second high school coach, Doug Shanks, he was a big believer in me. He told me at 16 years old, said, you're going to play professional baseball. I looked him in the eye and told him he was completely insane. But uh, he was right. I was wrong. So he made a believer out of myself, uh, made me believe in myself. That's cool. Uh, and even at the professional level, uh, once you know, a lot of guys, the more guys you interview, you'll hear a lot of these same stories. You get these organizations that have a certain philosophy. And if you don't meet that mold, they're not a believer in you either. Mm-hmm. So it's all a matter of you got to find the right believer in the right place, at the right time and be given an opportunity to make the most of it. And that kind of historically sets who gets the big leagues and who doesn't. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it m- must have been a pretty cool experience. Like w- when you did get o- ultimately drafted, in, um, you know, to make your major league debut, to be able to call those guys that did believe in you and be like, you were right, I actually did make it. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, I would say, you know, one, there's probably two, two big uh, things that happened. One, when I went to Etiwamba, I got drafted after my first year and then eventually signed as a draft and follow, which they don't have that anymore. Um, as soon as I got drafted, the coach at Ole Miss got fired, the guy who cut my scholarship. So that was a bit gratifying, knowing that I was right, he was wrong. And then the second scenario is, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I've really talked a lot about this, but uh, my last year with Cleveland, um, the farm director at the time told me basically I wasn't good enough and I would never play in the big leagues. And if I, they released me and I go to the big leagues with somebody else, that they would look like a fool. That's and needless to say, a year after that conversation, I was in the big leagues. And whether <laughs> they look like a fool or not remains to be seen, but um, it was a bit satisfying to achieve something that basically not even a year before 
somebody told me I couldn't do. Right. Oh yeah. 100%. And, uh, it, it must've been crazy that experience, especially at Ole Miss, like you mentioned, you got a scholarship and then you, you were a two way player and, um, going into that situation, were you always a, a good pitcher and, and good offensively as well? Or were you kind of confused at the fact when they told you that you were going to be a two way player? No, I was supposed to be a two way player. That's why I oh, okay. signed. For, but once I got to Ole Miss, they never allowed me the opportunity. I never even took batting practice. I never feel a fly ball. All I did was throw bullpens off the mound. Now, I eventually I redshirted that year, thank God, so I didn't burn a year of eligibility. But I, I never, I never even got close to playing a position there. It was strictly focus on your pitching, focus on your pitching, and which I did. Uh, I've always been kind of a people pleaser. I didn't raise much of a stink about it. But uh, towards the end of the year, I mean, things were evident that this was not going to work out. And um, they just ended up cutting my scholarship without me knowing and forced my hand to make a decision and go somewhere else, which it, it worked out in the long run. 100%, but that, that must have been obviously in the back of your mind. Or, I mean, you, you got drafted as a uh, as an outfitter or as, or as a hitter, and um, you, you must yeah. have had in the back of your mind, like, why did I waste all my time, you know, practicing pitching when I when I could have, you know, played that year uh, focusing on my hitting? Well, I built arm strength, so it made my arm a little <laughs> bit better, I guess. There you go. <laughs> take, you know, take the small positive side of it. Exactly. And you, you, you mentioned that you were drafted in the 29th round by the Indians. And uh, for, for the listeners that uh, don't know of the draft and follow process, can you just explain that a little bit for them? Yeah. So prior to, I can't even remember the year, uh, I guess it's been maybe five or six years. Um, so back in the day, every time a kid was drafted, uh, that team had held your draft rights for a year. And any time up until the next draft. So if I was drafted, actually I was drafted in 2000. So Cleveland would retain my draft rights for a full year until the next draft. Mm -hmm. And they would have the opportunity to follow my progress through college or, you know, I I guess it would have to be college. Or if uh, for some reason I wasn't in school, they would still have my draft rights and they would have the ability to sign me at any point during that year until the next draft. So, you know, so I got drafted in 2000. I played in 2001 at Itawamba. Actually, it's signed to go to Alabama in the prior fall. So I have I have a decision to make. Do I sign with Cleveland? Do I go to Alabama? Or do I go back into the draft and see who's going to draft me again? And I, to be honest, I was a poor kid from Mississippi, and they threw a little bit of money at me, and I was dumb enough to take it and run with it. So had I had that opportunity again, I might have done things differently. Now, hindsight's twenty twenty, but right. um, yeah, I'm still pleased how the way things panned out. But um, a year in the SEC might have done me a little good, given my maturity level at that age. I think it would have done me a little bit more good than being in pro ball. And and how how long did it take for you to like make that decision? Like, like did did they offer you the the contract, and was it like immediate, or did you have to take some time and and really like uh, plan out yeah. the pros and cons? Yeah, you have so you're meeting, you're meeting with the area scout. Then you're meeting with the cross checker. Then you're meeting with the national scouting director, John Mirabelli, which I have the utmost respect for. Uh, I think he's actually still in Cleveland, if I don't, if I'm not mistaken. He looks like a, you know, an Italian gangster. So I wouldn't want to make him. <laughs> mad. He, might, he might hire That's a hitman, but, uh, but yeah. So met with him. Um, he actually had an offer ready and didn't take it on the spot, had to sit and think about it. I think I had about a week, week and a half. 
to sit and think about it. And then eventually ultimately decided to just sign and start my career. Makes sense. And and what was that draft process sort of like, did, did, did you expect yourself to get drafted going into that year? And uh, sort of obviously what was your reaction when you first got that call? I, I didn't really know. I mean, I knew I had a good year and I knew, you know, there was a chance um, because we had a pretty good team and I had some good stats and, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's funny. I, I got the call in the 29th round. I, I believe I was picked like 972 or something like that. And then that summer um, I had one of my teammates from Etiwamba. He's from Australia. Uh, and he actually got drafted two picks after me. So I was like 974 and then he was like 976, you know, two picks in the 29th round. Right. And he was living with us that summer. So the phone's just going, this is before the age of cell phones. So the house phone is just like, blow, it's blowing up. I mean, it's ringing off the hook left and right with two kids getting drafted out of the same household in a matter of like three minutes. That's so that was a kind of <laughs> crazy experience, but a uh, unique one and, and a fun one at that. And did you guys, I'm guessing right after that, you guys celebrate a little bit. Oh my God, we're fresh. Oh yeah, we celebrated. For we went to New Orleans. I think we went to New Orleans that weekend, uh, had a there little go. fun. <laughs> Good stuff. And um, sort of w- when you first got into the minor leagues, w- was it sort of what you expected or w- were you kind of surprised that this is what professional baseball looks like? I think it was what I expected for the most part. Now, I mean, it doesn't mean I followed all the rules. I mean, I was late. <laughs> I, the whole idea of being late for something and then getting fined for it, where you actually have to pay a fine, that was a new experience for me. Uh, so I think I had an early BP session one day, and I was 30 minutes late for it. And I got fined, 50 bucks, which was <laughs> come near a lot of money considering how little we made back in those days. Right. So I, I never missed another batting practice. That was it. I was never late for another meeting after that. So it, it taught me a lesson. You always mm-hmm. be on time. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think all in all, it was somewhat what I expected. You know, I kind of had an idea. I did a little research on the front end. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, the whole host family thing was kind of a different scenario. But I mean, that's those are things you work through. Right. That's interesting. I actually worked uh, for a summer league th- this past this past uh, summer and for a collegiate baseball league. And I, th- all these kids had all these host families. And I, I asked them, I'm like, what do you guys do? And they're like, well, we come to the field, then we go home and, you know, just do the th- same thing over again. But I don't know, j- just myself, I would feel sort of uncomfortable being in somebody else's space. Yeah, it's it's strange. And then, uh, you know, when the first host family presents you with a three page rule book of what to do and what not to do, you're like, oh, my God, what did I get myself into? But, um, yeah, I mean, again, it's just it's one of those things you just kind of work through. And uh, yeah, there's not once you get into pro ball, there's not a lot of time to go goof off. I mean, you can right. go goof off in the morning, but if you don't have means of transportation, you're just kind of locked into playing a game, going home, going to sleep, waking up and doing it all over again. 100%. What, I got to ask, what were some of the rules? Do you remember any of them off the top of your head? But you must have been like, when they plopped on the table, you were like, really? Oh, yeah. what I got myself into? Can't drive the car. Uh, <laughs> do not leave the toilet seat up because the cat will drink the water. Oh, my gosh. Um, I mean, it was it was weird stuff. Like, right. yeah, just don't leave the lights on. Or I mean, I mean, most of it was common sense because you're in somebody else's space. So you obviously want to respect their space. But... Uh, but yeah, I mean, 
it was just we weren't even there long enough to even worry with the rules. Let's just say that. Right. I mean, we that's funny. We kind of just made a point to stay at the field as long as possible. <laughs> Makes sense. And uh, I mean, uh, I, I bet through your minor league experience, you definitely came across you know some interesting fields, some interesting towns. Well, explain a little bit of that experience, and, and was there any of them that you know you think back on and. Um, you, you can't believe you you were even in that sort of situation as a professional baseball player. Uh, I mean, one of the unique ones was um, probably my first road trip in pro ball. Uh, we opened up the new stadium in Brooklyn. So that was the first time they had had Brooklyn uh, baseball in Brooklyn in, I don't know, 50 years or something since the Dodgers moved out. So the, the side, they opened up the new stadium for the Cyclones that year and, um, they had the guy who hit the shot heard around the world and the guy who gave up the shot heard around the world, both throwing out first pitches as well as Mayor Rudy Giuliani. And so that was a cool experience to be a part of. I mean, we show up to the field and even the attendants at the stadium didn't even know how to get to the visitor locker room. Like everything was so (laughs) new. They had no idea. The towels in the bathroom or in the locker room were still in the shrink wrap, still in the wrapper. They didn't take the towels out of the wrapper all the lockers were so locked and they didn't even know where the key was. So, oh I mean, just little tidbits like that or, or nuances are kind of cool. I think I have a ball with the baseball back in Brooklyn stamp on it, but, um, That's cool. but no, that was a great environment to be in. And um, no, that was 2001. So, and we all know what happened in September of 2001, right. which was uh, kind of crazy. Yeah. That must've been a really interesting experience, especially being able to be a part of that. Um, and like the opening with Mayor Giuliani and everything like that, that definitely must've been a pretty incredible experience. For sure. It so, was, it was. Yeah. I can only imagine. And, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's must be pretty crazy for you looking back um, the seven years that you spent in the minors. I, I, I can't even imagine that, um, you know, not, no, not knowing. I don't want to imagine it either. <laughs> yeah, but, but like not, not knowing if you're going to have a job tomorrow or if you're going to get set down or or just seeing guys that you played with being called up. And uh, I got to ask, how, how tough was that uh, mentally? Well, it's tough. I mean, but you have to be mentally tough to play baseball or any sport for that matter at a professional level because right. – it's a dog eat dog business. I mean, mm-hmm. you're one day you're in the next day you're out and that could be through injury. It could be through just not, uh, you know, uh, doing well enough. Uh, I mean, it could be for a number of reasons. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a ruthless business and every day you're, you're trying to take somebody else's job, the guy above you at the next level, and then somebody's trying to take your job. So you always mm-hmm. have to be on your toes and, um, you know, the guys in the minor leagues, I mean, they all realize that it, it's a grinding league. I mean, you don't, there's no days. Off. I think you have three days off and, or I'm sorry, you get, so the season's five months, you get five days off in five months, you get a month a day or a day a month. Um, so it, it's, it's ruthless. I mean, it's, it's a lot more grueling to play 142 games over five months than it is to play 162 games over six months. That's just my opinion. Especially with the travel and the logistics that Major League Baseball has. I mean, minor league baseball, they I mean, basically you're riding a bus or you're on a red eye at, you know, three AM wake up call to go to the airport and catch the first flight out and play that night. Wow. So there's um there's plenty of horror stories about transportation in minor league baseball. <laughs> Oh, I can only imagine, yeah, especially being on a bus. How how do you remember your longest bus ride? Uh, I think fourteen hours. Wow. Maybe. Holy crap. Yeah, so you basically eat up 
like I said before, you have five off days in minor league baseball. And on that road trip, we would eat up two of them because the bus trip was so long. Oh, so, yeah, crazy. There, goes, there goes two of your off days right there sitting on a bus with <laughs> 25 other sweaty guys. Sounds like a blast. Sounds like it sounds like a very oh, fun off day. Great. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't have it any other way. Exactly. I love it. Um, and and I, I also read that you were managed by uh, Tori Lovello, um, the former Red Sox bench coach, as well as the current uh, Diamondbacks manager. And explain a little bit about your experience with Tori. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I got spoiled uh, really bad uh, with managers. So I had Tori. Um, I was lucky to have him. I had him for a number of years, I think five in total, 02, 04, 05, 06, 07. So I had him quite a bit. I was very fortunate to be with him. He's he's a player's manager, man. He's, he's a great guy. He's wanting the best for you. He's not going to act like a drill sergeant, make you run laps or anything. Everybody takes care of their own business right. and, and everybody respects him. And you know, a lot of the, all the guys that I really fell in favor of um, are all under that same umbrella where everybody wants to play hard for him. Everybody really respects him. And everybody wants to learn from him. That would be Tori Lovello, um, obviously Terry Francona, um, and then you know the late Ron Johnson. May he rest in peace. He was fantastic players manager. Um, so I mean, yeah, I just got um, I got spoiled. What can I say <laughs> with managers? So I was very blessed in that aspect. That's really cool. And, uh, you know, growing up, I've, I've always known, uh, Terry Francona as, as he, he, he was essentially the manager all throughout my life. And, um, I'm curious sort of your experience with him and, uh, cause he, he seems like what he said, a player's manager and, and somebody who will always stick up for you. Yeah. And yeah, I'll give you, here's two stories about Tito. Uh, one, I think they were struggling and I believe it was 2010. They had a little bad skid, Things were starting to go off the rails a little bit. He just sat everybody down, and after the game, I think obviously we lost, but um, he said, we're, whatever happens, we're going to get there together and just made it reassured everybody that he's got their back, we have his back, mm-hmm. and we're, if we win, lose, or draw, we're all going to do it together. Nobody's going to go astray and go badmouth each other in, in the press. We're all going to stick together. We're all going to work as a team. So everybody really respects him for doing things just of that nature. And then the second one's more personal. So in 09, uh, I had a really bad knee injury that uh, required surgery two months in this, three months in the season. And then I was done. It was over. My season was over after that. And I got removed from the roster. So I wasn't, um, uh, what did, uh, DFA, but I just completely had an outright release. So they needed a roster spot. And so they released somebody on the roster that was hurt and that had no chance of playing, which I get it from a business. They need a roster spot. They're going to let somebody that's hurt go so they can free up a spot. But on the other hand of that, you know, it sucks that I have no control over this, that I'm on a big league roster. And now all of a sudden I'm hurt and I can't do anything. and I get released. And so nobody's going to want to pick me up. So that was just another personal issue I had to deal with. But right after that happened, I had one phone call and it was from Tito. And he says, cool. yeah, I just wanted to let you know I'm thinking about you. And I really hate the way things panned out, but I'm here for you if you ever need anything. So, I mean, that, that meant a lot. He didn't have to make that call. Mm-hmm. And that meant a lot coming from a big league skipper who's already at that point won 
uh, you won a world series and you know, I was like the 26th, 25th, 26th guy on the roster. I go up when somebody gets hurt. I go back down when somebody's healthy. And for him to take the time to call me and say those things, uh, it really meant a lot. Yeah, I, I bet. he He's always a class act and always always seemed like a, a super nice guy, even when the you know Boston media was, was going after him and, and the team. Right. Yeah, that media is evil. Now you got to watch out for them. I hope you guys did enjoy part one of the Jonathan Van Every interview and make sure you check out Locked On Red Sox tomorrow to hear part two, where he explains a lot more about his experience on the Red Sox and tell some funny, funny stories about Manny Ramirez and Coco Crisp. But I wanted to thank you so much for making Locked On Red Sox your first listen every single day. Now make your second listen Locked On Bets, your daily one-stop shop for all your gambling needs. Locked On Bets, hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling. It's free and available on all platforms. Also, make sure you follow Locked On Red Sox over on Twitter. It's LO underscore Red Sox. Also, make sure you follow myself at Jake Iggy, as well as Nesson writer Lauren Campbell, who's my co-host. And her Twitter handle is La 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 La. That's four laws. Lauren with four R's. And also make sure you subscribe on whatever audio platform you are listening to so you get updated for daily episodes. We also post the video version on YouTube as well. But I really appreciate everybody tuning in today. And like I said, make sure you tune in tomorrow for part two of the Jonathan Man Every Conversation. See you guys and talk to you guys tomorrow. Peace.